We're going to jump into the Word of God for just a few moments. I'm going to start out in the book of Acts. The, if I can read that handwriting, I think that says the 18th chapter. But I think it's actually the 8th chapter, and I just can't read my handwriting. But Brother Johnson, if I told you 18 in your notes, I told you wrong, because it's actually chapter 8, chapter 9. I just can't read my own handwriting. Uh, or sorry, chapter 8, yes, chapter 8, chapter 9. So we're going to start out in the book of Acts, chapter 8. I'll try to read my own writing the rest of the day. Uh, we're talking our reading of Saul here, and uh, the Valor Project guy's got a little preview as we touched on this this morning. It says, Saul was consenting unto his death, that being Stephen's death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. We'll jump down to chapter 9. We're going to start with verse 1. It says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went into the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He said, Who art thou, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city. It shall be told thee what thou must do. We're going to pause here for a moment and pray. Ask that the Lord will touch our hearts and speak through his word to us. Lord, we thank you today for what you've done in this service so far. And Lord, we ask today that as uh, we look into your word for a few moments, we ask that you speak through your word into our hearts, Lord. We ask you... Touch mightily, work mightily today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. I, uh, I have a bit of a problem with projects. I like them. I like to have a lot of projects. If my wife would let me, I would have a junkyard in my house yard um, because I like projects. My, my favorite things to, to acquire are not shiny pieces of metal that are old cars that somebody else has done, but I like really rusty ones with holes in them because I like projects. I, I've been this way all my life, unfortunately. Um, when my wife and I got married, my, my mother, when I moved out, she said, by the way, you have to take all your junk with you. That hurt my feelings a little bit because it was good stuff. But the joke was on her because I still have a motorcycle in her attic. It's in pieces in her attic, and um, I need a few parts to someday finish it that I haven't found out where to get yet. Um, so it's still in pieces in her attic, and the nice thing about it is that engine's pretty heavy, so unless I move it, it's probably just going to stay in her attic. But I, I like to have projects. I mean, that, that particular project, I, I, it's a 1958 Ducati motorcycle that I, I think I've owned for about 20 years now. I've never really done anything with it. I've, like, sometimes I'll get parts out and look at them and put it back. But, but it's a project of mine, and I'm going to finish it one of these days, I'll, allegedly. And I, I like projects. I, I have another one that I, is a motorcycle that was given to me uh, by uh, the pastor before my grandfather of my 
church I grew up in, and uh, he was babysat me when I was little, and at some point he gave me this motorcycle. I think I was about 13. And then it went to Virginia, and my grandfather restored it for me for my uh, 16th birthday and gave it to me, and I rode it, and it was awesome, and had it for a couple of years, and at some point there, I got tired of it in that state, and I took it apart and put it all back together different, and then I rode it for a couple more years, and then it had some problems, and I took it apart in about 2005 or six, and I, I've moved a couple times, but all the parts are, are still there, and it's just a project, and one of these days, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish that project. Sitting not too far from it in my shop now is, it's not just my projects that I attract, I I have a motorcycle that I have moved, this is the third house I've had it at, um, that not only have I never worked on it, I don't own it, don't really care much about it, but projects just attract me. So I've got this half-finished project, and not too far from that is a 67 Chevy that allegedly will be my daily driver by the end of the year, although at the beginning of the year I said I was driving at the Hot Rod Power Tour, which was uh, a month ago. Um, but I like projects. It doesn't really have to be cars, motorcycles. It doesn't have to be metal. I, uh, I like liked building houses for a lot of years because I could start with nothing, and then when I got done, there was a house there. And the nice thing was I felt like I was getting something done because every three months or so, I'd check a house off the box and go start another one, and I was getting a project done and starting another one. It just something about that, having a mess or a pile of wood or whatever, and building something out of it, it, it's what I enjoy. And I'm thankful, though, that it's not just me that likes projects. I'm thankful that I'm not the only person. I, I, I have some friends that like projects. I, I know Brother Kaiser shares my predilection for junk. Um, and there's probably some others here that, that just kind of like old stuff and like to get it in rough shape and make it into slightly rough, less rough shape and drive it around. But uh, I'm thankful more than that, that my God, he likes projects. I was, was contemplating this week, and uh, sometimes being a person that likes projects, you end up working on projects that aren't pleasant. And I was working on a car that I wasn't enjoying and didn't want to be working on. It was, you know, 40 years newer than I wanted to touch, but it needed done. So I was doing it, and as I was working on it, I began to think a little bit about things that, that have to be done and the state we take things and then the state we, we leave them in. I realized that, my God, he likes projects. And I begin to think of Saul, and we're going to look at a couple people today. We're going to look at Saul, and we're going to look at Moses, we're going to look at Gideon, uh, and I'm going to try to be done not much afternoon. But as Saul is, we look into the beginning of his writing here, Saul is where we started reading. He's standing there holding the coats, watching them stone Stephen. He says, yep, he's a Christian, let's kill him. Where we jump to shortly after that, he is... Uh, on his way to Damascus. It wasn't enough to get all the Christians in Jerusalem when Saul starts persecuting, when people start dying, they start scattering. So when they start scattering, what that's doing is spreading the gospel because now they're not all just in Jerusalem, but the Christians are going here and here and here. And Saul, he says, we can't have this. We've got to kill those Christians. We can't spread them all over the world and let them spread their message further. We've got to take care of this. So he goes to the high priest. He says, give me some letters. Give me some authority so that I can go down the road to Damascus 
And any other Christians that scattered there after I killed Stephen here, I can go ahead and kill them too. Let me just put this fire out before it starts. Let me take care of this. So that's where we find Saul on the road to Damascus. And it's at that point, that guy, that God says, hey, let me have a talk with you, Saul. In fact, we're going we're gonna to change your name and we're going to minister to you just a little bit and then you're going to take off and you're going to go spend the rest of your life spreading the gospel. We start reading all these letters in the back of the book. They're not called the Pauline epistles for no reason. It's because Saul, whose name was changed to Paul, wrote them. We, we see the gospel spread all over the continent at the time and as the gospel is spread to all these different places. That was all happening because these missionary journeys of this guy named Paul, who shortly before was Saul, standing by making sure Stephen got killed real good. God, he likes projects, but I, see, sometimes I will look at things. I have, my wife won't believe this, but I have looked at things and said, that, that's a little too rough. I don't, I don't think I want to start with that. She's shaking her head. There are things that I look at. I say, no, that that's just more than I want to mess with. I I have a friend that's worse than me. He has a house that's actually now about half completed. But a year ago, when he started looking at this, I told him, I said, Charlie, the best thing you can do is take a dozer and drive through that thing and start over. I I thought that project was too far gone. My buddy Charles, he. He went ahead and dug into it and said, no, I like this house. I'm attached to it. I grew up here, and we're going to fix it and getting pretty close to having a decent place, pretty nice place. But my God, he, he looks at the projects that some people say, that one's lost. That one is not worth saving. It's not any good. You might take some parts off of it, but it's just not worth having. We don't need that. We'll, let's find a better place to start because if I was looking for somebody to spread the gospel, if I was looking for somebody to make Christianity more than it was, to spread it all around the world to all the Gentiles rather than just the Jews, you know who I would not have picked if I were picking? The guy that was killing all the Christians. That's not generally the guy you want. You don't want the guy that says, I'm going to take you all out to be the guy to spread that, that he's trying to take out. But my God, he likes projects. And he saw something in Saul. He saw the, the zealousness that he knew if Saul worked this hard, For what he thought was right, if God could show him what was right, he would work every bit as hard to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's because my God likes projects that Saul took the gospel on his missionary journeys. It's because my God liked projects that the gospel eventually made it to me. I'm thankful that God saw fit to stop Saul on the road to Damascus. I'm thankful that God said, Hey, Saul, I know that you're trying to kill all the Christians, but let me tell you who I actually am. The God that you're serving, I am Jesus. And you're going about this a little wrong, but I just need you to do right. It's shortly after that we find that it's Saul trying to escape the city so that he can be safe. It's Saul that's no longer the popular one. We end up seeing Paul imprisoned. We end up seeing Paul going to Rome and being jailed and having all these things happen all because it was he would have been on the other end of that had he not changed but he realized where he was going when God saw fit to reach down to a project named Saul he's not the only one 
we look in the book of Exodus, the second chapter, I'm going to start reading at verse 14. Uh, I'll give you a little background though. Moses has been raised in the house of Pharaoh. He goes out, he sees, uh, he sees an uh, Egyptian man smiting a Hebrew. A Hebrew. He sees nobody around to watch. He kills the Egyptian guy and hides him. Uh, he goes out, finds two Hebrews fighting. Uh, he wants to talk to him while you're hitting him. And then we get to verse 14. So he said, who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. He says, I thought I got away with this. I thought I killed that guy and nobody found out. But it's, it's known. And when Pharaoh heard the thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So where we jump into Moses' life here, We've passed the part where he was a little baby that was supposed to be killed and floated in the reed basket, and the princess finds him and says, oh, I want this baby, but I need to hire somebody to take care of him, and hires his mother, unbeknownst to her. Uh, and he grows up in Pharaoh's house, and then he's in this place where he's grown up as an Egyptian. He's been raised an Egyptian, but he's been raised by his Jewish mother. So he is a Jew, and he knows he's a Jew, and he knows that the Hebrews are his people, but he also is has all the privilege of growing up in the uh, Pharaoh's household, and he gets to this place that he finds the Egyptian man smiting the Hebrew man, and he says, I can't take any more of this. So he kills the Egyptian and hides him and thinks he got away with it. Uh, and then they, he's caught. The Hebrews have seen him, and as we read here, as two Hebrew men are fighting, and he comes to them and says, what's going on here? They say, you're not our judge. We just saw you kill a guy. What do you got to do with us getting into an argument? You just killed a man. And Pharaoh finds out, and he knows. So where we jump into Moses' life, he's fleeing from everything he's doing. He's going to hide in the desert. He spends some years hiding around in the desert. And I want to jump back into Moses' life. We're going to skip a few years. I'm going to start reading chapter 3 and verse 3. And Moses said, I'll now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. We've jumped a little ways. Moses has a wife, a father-in-law. He's a working as a shepherd for his father-in-law, watching the flock, and he sees a, a bush on fire, and it just sits there not going anywhere. It ain't getting any smaller. It's not burning down. It's just burning, staying the same. It's not consumed. He says, I'm going to go check this out. Verse 4. It says, And the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. He said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou stands is holy ground. God comes to Moses, who's hiding out in the backside of the desert watching sheep. A guy that's been a murderer, a guy that's killed and covered it up, and because of that is now a murderer that's in exile. We find later from talking, he's even a murderer in exile that doesn't talk very good. At least by his own admission. All of those things seem to disqualify him from being the leader of God's people. Mind you, the leader of God's people is going to have to lead him out of Egypt. Moses is in exile from Egypt. Leader of God's people ought to be a just man, and Moses is a murderer. Leader of three million people really probably ought to be able to talk pretty good. When God's trying to say, Moses, here we need to go, and his answer is, God, I talk funny. 
And yet in the midst of all of these disqualifiers from the job God called him to, God says, you know who I need to lead my people? I need Moses. Moses probably is looking at the problems. We know he's looking at some because his answer is, God, I can't talk good. But I wonder if running through Moses' head, just like sometimes when God calls us or asks us to do something, what starts running through our head is not, look what God's going to do here, but it starts to become, well, God, I've got this problem. I've made this mistake. I've done this wrong. God, I talk funny. God's looking at Moses. What God sees is not Moses killing a man, talking funny, in exile from Egypt. What God sees is a perfectly qualified gentleman that grew up in the home of Pharaoh and knows both the Jewish and the Egyptian customs. He, he sees a Hebrew that grew up knowing what it took to get around in the courts of the Egyptian Pharaoh. He sees a qualification that could only have come through Moses, all God beginning to work in his life, all the way back at the beginning of his life when he floats down the river in that basket. Moses doesn't see all that. Moses sees all the problems. Moses sees everything that he's done wrong or that he's not good at or that he can't quite do right. And God says, Moses, I like projects. I see all the junk you've got going on there. But what I see beyond that is that no one is as qualified to do this. No one has the very specific qualifications, Moses, that you do. All the other baby boys at Moses' time were killed. Moses was the one that was qualified to do what God called him to do. And yet Moses didn't see that. Moses is looking and says, God, I just talk funny. I mean, I look funny, but I try. Moses, he says, God, I... I talk funny, I can't do much. And God says, Moses, I'm calling you. We'll figure the rest out. If we need to get your brother there beside you because he can talk good and you can't, that's not a big problem. We'll get in Aaron in on this deal too. But what's important is that no one has the qualifications, Moses, that you have. Because you see, even in exile, he was still the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. Which meant that it, when it was time for someone to walk into the courts... And someone to walk up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. Anyone else, any other Hebrew would have been killed long before they made it into the throne room of the Pharaoh. But as the grandson, or looking at time, maybe the brother, only Moses was qualified to walk in the door and the guards not kill him. Walk down the hall towards the chamber and nobody there had the authority to stop him. It was only Moses that was qualified to walk right up to the throne and say, Pharaoh, let my people go. God saw something in this exiled murderer hiding out in the desert. What he saw was a leader of three million Hebrews. We go to the book of Judges, the sixth chapter. I'm going to start reading with verse 11. It says, there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abiezrite, and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Where we jump into this snapshot of Gideon's life, what we find is a guy hiding from the Midianites, just trying to thresh some wheat. He's just trying to come up with some food, and to do that, the people are such oppressed, and 
He's a meek enough man. He says, I'm going to go hide out behind the wine press. I'm going to thresh my wheat there. Maybe over here I can do this and nobody will find me and nobody will think to look for me here and I can come up with something to eat for me and my family. That's where we find Gideon. We keep reading with verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with me. Mind you, if I read the next statement that Gideon's hiding, Thou mighty man of valor. God was not speaking to Gideon as he sent his angel to talk to him. He did not speak to him in his current situation, but he spoke to him in the potential that he saw for his project. And Gideon said unto him, If my Lord, oh my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why has all this befallen us? Why has this all happened? Where be all these miracles which our fathers told us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us? delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. In verse 14, the Lord looked upon him. And here again, remember that we're talking about a guy that's hiding. He says, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And if that verse stopped right there, it may not make a lot of sense. But then God continues, Have not I sent thee? He adds that one qualifier to this whole statement towards Gideon. And it doesn't matter at that point that Gideon's hiding out. It doesn't matter that he's a young guy from a small tribe. It doesn't matter that he doesn't have a whole lot of power, that he's probably not a great warrior because he's not all fighting. He's here hiding out. And God says, hey, you over there, just trying to get something to eat while you're hiding out behind a wine press. Why don't you you come here, you mighty man of valor, because I'm going to send you to fight a battle. God didn't look at the state of the project when he picked it up. What he looked at was the state of where he knew Gideon would be in a short time. I tend to be a bit of a dreamer. That's why I'm so into buying junk, I guess. But I don't don't bring these rusty things home and look at the rusty thing on my trailer that I brought home. I walk through a junkyard and I look at it and I see, to me it doesn't look like it currently looks, but it looks like how it would be when I was done with it. Unfortunately for me, it usually looks like it would be how it would look when I was done with it with an unlimited budget, which unfortunately I don't have access to, but its I don't see it in the state it's in, I see it in the state I want it to be in. My God, He doesn't look at me or you, or Gideon, or Moses, or Saul, and say, oh, look how rough that is. Look at all the problems, and look at everything going on here. Look at all the mess they've made. Look at the mistakes they've made. Look at everything they've done, and look at their weaknesses, and they don't talk right. They don't do this right. They don't do that right. They don't know the right people, whatever it may be. God doesn't look at that. What God looks says, hey, you mighty man of valor, look what I can do with you, Gideon. He says, Saul, I see what you're doing, but what I want you to do is I want you to spread my gospel to all. He looks at Moses and says, Moses, I know you killed a man and you're hiding out and you talk funny, but I see where you're going to be leading my people out of Egypt. My God, he looks at people and he doesn't see the mess. He doesn't necessarily see the problems. I understand that, that God sees all and God knows all. I'm not disputing that. I, 
I understand that there comes a judgment day that my God is our judge, and I'm not disputing that. But what I do make the claim or the statement today is that when my God looks at me today, he doesn't necessarily define me by my shortcomings. He defines me by my potential. I was talking to some young men this morning. A couple of them we're going to lose here in a few weeks. Reminding them that we move on in life. Sometimes we come to places that our potential isn't necessarily the thing lighting up in our eyes. Not the biggest thing that we see because life's starting to happen. And all the things start going on. And so you might get to school in a couple weeks and a couple months in it might be a little rough. Everything's changing. You're not at home. You don't have everything you've had. You're in a different church. You're talking to different people. And you've got all this schoolwork that's got to get done. And there's going to be some moments there. It ain't going to be pleasant, guys. But when you get to that point, you can get to that point remembering that God doesn't see you for where you struggle in that moment. He sees you for where he's going to bring you on the other side. And how often do I look at my walk with God or my relationship with God or maybe something God's asked me to do? Some days I just look at trying to get to heaven and I say, God, there's no way I can do this. Look at all the mess I've made. And maybe I'm the only one that does that, but I don't think so. We look at a problem or we look at a situation and say, I don't know how God can work here because I've got all this mess. Life has happened, and in the midst of all of that, God's looking down saying, yeah, but look what I can do for you when I'm done. Look what I'm going to do through you when I get done working in your life. Look who I'm going to make out of you. Look at the ministry I'm going to do through your life. Look at what I can do. I wonder if sometimes I don't look at all my shortcomings and say, God, I don't even know how I'm going to do this, and God's looking at me saying, yeah, but I see you in heaven. I see you when you've made it. So Psalm with Nelson, I'm going to make it. I, I know that I can make it. I know that you can make it. I know that each of us, here if you come begin to play. I know that each of us can make it. But what I know is if I get caught up on all the why I can't, it's far too easy for me to let those take over. And all of a sudden the front of my mindset is not the how I can make it or how I can do this or how I can do that. But what's up forefront is I can't make it because I've got all this going on and there's no way that I can get to heaven because I've made so many mistakes and there's no way I can do the work God wants for me to do because I'm just not qualified. And God's looking at me the whole time and said, hey, I've got something awesome for you. I'm talking about myself this morning because it's a little more comfortable for me to talk about myself than talk about everybody else. But each of us finds our place, times and places and situations that God's looking to use us or looking to move and work in our lives and make something out of us greater than what we currently are. And in that time, in that place, that situation, maybe, maybe today's your first day and you're just starting to make a step towards God. And in that place, God's looking at you and says, I can do mighty things with you. Maybe you've been at it for 50 years. God's looking. You're saying, God, I'm tired and I've been doing this for a long time. And God's looking at you saying, I'm not done with you yet. You can still make it. And beyond that, I can still do some things in your life. Regardless of where we find ourselves this morning, there is not one of us that God looks at and has written off as a lost cause. 
There is not one of us today that my God looks at and says, that project is too far gone for me to use. There is no one here. No one here that my God looks at and says, I can't do something with you today. But I promise you today, every one of us, my God looks at and what He sees when He sees you is your potential. What He sees when He sees you is not your problem, but it is your potential. It is not where you are, but it is where He knows He can take you to. This morning, uh, these altars are open. I ask that we come. Please come. Whatever it is that you bring with you that is maybe holding you back or keeping you, bring that and give it to God this morning. Let Him take care. He will not call you to any place He will not equip you for. So whatever you think may hold back your potential, it's in these altars that my God finishes projects. It's in these altars, it's in this place, in this time that my God can take the junk and He can make something mighty, something miraculous, something powerful out of it. As our team plays this morning, as we begin to, we begin to sing, I want us to take some time to entertain the presence of Almighty God this morning. Most importantly, I want to take some time and let him work on me today. I want to take some time and let him work on this project this morning. Can you?